Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. According to Google, gaslighting is a form of psychological manipulation in which the abuser attempts to sow self-doubt and confusion in their victim's mind. This is the first Google search. I'm not sure. Does that make sense in English? In which the abuser attempts to sow self-doubt. Well, typically gaslighters are seeking to gain power and control over the other person by distorting reality and forcing them to question their own judgment and intuition. Now, gaslighting is one of those phrases, one of those words that five years ago you never would have heard it didn't really have a meaning like many things over the last two or three or four years it's become something people commonly use now um one of the first memes that comes up when i look at gaslighting and meaning um it says stop using the term gaslighting to describe differences of opinion this is normal well i would agree with that gaslighting is a kind of new word a new phrase which basically has come to use to be used by someone to describe more or less anyone who disagrees with them. What it seems to mean is the sowing of self-doubt, the sowing of doubt. Um, And that's what this podcast is about. Some people have said to me, how come you don't really tackle so many serious subjects anymore? Well, yes and no. Um, It's true that after the pandemic or after about a hundred and something episodes, um, for the last year, I probably concentrated a little bit more about music, about... um, you know, culture and society, as some historical things, but not always gone so much into politics. This one is a little bit of a sort of, it's a bit vague. It's about lots of different kinds of things, but ultimately it's about why nothing seems to make sense anymore. And that, I suppose, is part of gaslighting, um, to sow self-doubt. And it seems like we're constantly gaslit. We're being constantly gaslit. Um, I'm going to stop saying it now. Um, every day told one thing is x and then the following week it's y and you're just supposed to toe the line with whatever this new viewpoint is whatever this new um meaning and definition is and then the week after it might change again what the hell is going on why does so little seem to make sense that's what we're going to talk about today Maybe it's for those of a certain age who knew the world before the internet, before social media, and that young people now take it for granted that you're going to be told one thing one week and another thing the other week, and you just literally have to try and flow with it all. And that's sticking your head above the parapet and going, hang on, hang on, I don't understand. 
there's a new orthodoxy already on the street. There's new words which have new meaning. They what meant one thing one week doesn't. The next week. But maybe it's for those of us who grew up before the internet, before social media. Something doesn't feel right. We're living in an age now where sense-making is becoming more and more difficult. Why is that? Let's get into it. Why does nothing really seem to make sense anymore? The first reason that I would posit is that we have no shared narratives anymore. I've said this before on the podcast. I've talked about it often. But the fact that we are so completely atomized as a society, um, I feel, is one of the main reasons. Once upon a time, the news was the news. It used to be at 9 p.m. That was the main evening news. My parents encouraged me to sit and watch it. There was, um, there was news in the morning when you woke up for school that was on in the house, but often you were so busy um, trying to not be late, trying to prepare everything, you know, running around the house. It was quite a chaotic time, but you took in news in the morning at maybe it was at half seven or eight, and then you went to school, and then at dinner time, at least in my home, the radio was on. And so at 6 p.m., um, you heard the 6 p.m. news. Now, that's three times a day, three servings a day you got of news, each one half an hour um, to 45 minutes to an hour long. And then on Sunday, it just was uh, became a habit that I would sit at the kitchen table in my parents' house and read the Sunday papers pretty much front to back. Um, and this is one thing that I think is really important about modern society that um, I don't think we think about is that codex, codex means book, codex gigas, whatever. Um, and if you look at, say, the ancient Egyptians, uh, they wrote on papyrus, um, you know, the ancient Roman society. With papyrus, you scroll. So if you think about the way you use your phone, you scroll uh, top to bottom. This is almost like returning to the, mo uh, the mode of delivery of information of two, two and a half, three thousand years ago. Because Codex is a book where you turn the pages. And it feels to me that you have less personal autonomy when you're scrolling because you have to go through everything to get to the bit you want. Whereas with a paper, it's laid out on the table, you scan the stories. You scan the stories and if something on that page doesn't seem like it interests you or a section, you flip over the page. It gives you, I think, more personal control over the way you um, aggregate, the way you take in the news. But we've moved back to scrolling. It's a very interesting thing. Um, it's just because of the nature of technology and the phone. You scroll top to bottom. Um, book format no longer. And so, therefore, that's why they say death scrolling. And you stop and you look at things that you perhaps... Um, if you were looking at a paper, would never have bothered with. I think the codex, the book form, uh, gave you more freedom to choose what to read. And um, I always use the same example, and that is um, Ethiopia, the famine in 86. I'm sure people are tired of hearing about it. So let me take, for example, a different, um, a different example. I remember as a child, it would have been in the early 80s, watching The Challenger. Now, I say this because there's a Netflix documentary that I started watching about the Challenger space shuttle. I think it's in 80. One or 83. Um, I think the, the shuttle in 81 actually landed. Um, and I remember being a child and having a little toy of that. Um, and then in 83 was the one that exploded, killing the seven people on board. And you watched it live on TV. And a lot of people at the time compared it to the shooting of JFK. Now, I don't think it's quite um, as weighty as that historically. But I remember it. I remember it in 83. 
and I was maybe eight or nine years old, and sitting around the television because it was a big deal for whatever reason that the Challenger um, space shuttle launch um, was a shared common experience of which we have very few anymore. But the next day in school, all of the conversation was about the Challenger space shuttle. That was the news. Yet now um, we all have our own version of the news. Intelligent people, some of my oldest friends, I sat opposite them in the pub over a pint and made um, uh, you know, a point to them and vice versa, and we've both realized either they don't know the story, as their algorithm has blanked it, or they're looking at it from a completely different angle, because our algorithm, our um, phones, this is your particular news feed, completely and utterly tailored towards you, so we don't have a shared narrative, and this is one of the reasons why so many, so few things make sense anymore, because we can't, on a, we cannot agree on what makes sense, um, even though, of course, you know, not to be naive, the conglomeration of media ownership in the old days, in the 70s, in the 80s, the Rupert Murdochs or whatever you want to say, uh, has always been a thing. And of course, um, it's something society has always had to fight against. Um, there once used to be monop commissions dedicated to undoing the monopoly of media. Um, they seem to be somewhat powerless now, it feels. I think it's maybe because they were completely outflanked by the progress of technology. Maybe some of you have watched those ridiculous Senate hearings where American senators, clearly who have no comprehension of the technology, are trying to discuss things with Mark Zuckerberg, and they barely understand online to offline. Now, this is probably being a bit disingenuous because it's maybe seven or eight or nine years ago, and I would hope and presume some of them have caught up to how things work now. But it was still alarming, the fact that they didn't understand the universal context of um, the, the technology and that their local, um, their local laws were going to be rendered inefficient in dealing with it when they couldn't even grasp the technology to begin with. We've always had conglomeration of media ownership, but now it's completely different in the sense that your death scroll is just your death scroll and it will be singular to you and you alone um, compared to anybody in the world. And it knows what makes us sad and what makes us mad. And I get the feeling that once upon a time, journalists saw themselves as speaking truth to power. Um, now, I have a degree in journalism. That's what I went to uh, study in um, college um, with a heavy leaning into uh, political science and all that kind of stuff and did a lot of a lot more politics than at the time we were encouraged to make radio shows and that kind of thing. And I thought even when I did this course, um, at 30, that the technology was going to be outflanked um, and that sort of, uh, the, the, even at the time, the primitive editing software we were using to make radio shows, this was going to go out of um, date if it wasn't already very quickly. So I lent more into the politics than that. But it strikes me that something has changed, that a new breed of younger journalist um, uh, wants to hold the people to account, not the power to account. Unwittingly or unwittingly or not, it seems to do the bidding of the powers that be. The people are not to be trusted, and that means you. And you need to be told what is right, as if left to our own devices. How can we should be trusted to make the right decision? That is the predominantly, the prevailing narrative very often when you um, dip into the, um, the editorialized aspect of your algorithm, the editorialized aspect of modern media. And often that right decision would seem to coalesce with the viewpoint of the state or politicians or powerful multinational influence. Um, 
maybe it's because there's simply no money in it anymore, as they say. You know, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. Um, that's the saying. So you take away the ability of an entire structure of employment to make a living, and the adults leave the room because they have to. And activists, younger activists, use journalism as a way to supplement their idealism. Um, but even that, it feels maybe on the way out. As right now, when I finish recording this podcast, I could literally start my own AI newspaper this evening and employ no one and put it out every day with whatever propaganda I want to um, push it, push on it, to force it, um, to um, suggest, take your opinions from here and here and here. I want a Marxist critique of Western society in a, you know, Hegelian narrative, whatever you want to say. Certainly in my country, it feels like politicians get a very easy ride from the media, who I feel very often want to be like them. They want to be inside the tent pissing out rather than, um, in, you know, outside the tent pissing in, as they used to say. Um, or like me, maybe you've thought about burning the damn tent to the ground. But that's part of the reason why I think so little makes sense anymore to us, because we have no shared narratives. We certainly have no shared, uh, we're no positive shared stories anymore. Um, outside of sport, um, no sense of communal achievement, no collective story of purpose. Like even during hard times existed between people. Um, maybe you say, oh, they were manufactured. And I'm not going to sit here and say that the media before wasn't owned by, um, you know, uh, like I said, the influences of the Rupert Murdoch's of the world. But it seems that um, things, uh, the 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 personally censorious nature of modern social media is very different people are censoring themselves and their opinions and all this bleeds into your editorialized algorithm um but there's just an example of the nature of modern society with so much info so much information for your lizard brain to take in every day bad news spreads quicker if it digitally leads it bleeds that was always the um, always the case. Who cares or has time for anything so seemingly futile as a shared positive experience? Only pessimism. 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 Mm, interesting. Well, like I said, that Challenger space launch, and it turned into a tragedy. But the reason people tuned in was because of this uh, communal, almost universal experience there, where people were reveling in the fact the technological achievement. Um, of all of these, you know, um, young men and women going up into space. And it was a shared narrative. However, as the world now seems so overwhelmingly dark, we certainly don't seem to have heroes anymore. We don't seem to have space for heroes. We don't seem to have a shared narrative that um, can combat all of these dark forces that seem to be massing um, opposed to us. The aspiration amongst, say, journalists to become celebrity by any costs not really journalists, but let's say pretty much everyone. To become a celebrity by any costs is the product of a modern social media machine which feeds all of our worst narcissistic impulse. So perhaps the truth of a story may get in the way of garnering the most clicks and follows. Social media rewards the worst impulses of our human nature. A journalist perhaps maybe is less interested in the truth than appealing to their base, captured by their audience, the pursuit of that gotcha moment that drives their engagement. Certainly the old model of media finances has almost completely fallen apart, which was an ad-based revenue. But the collapse of the, the collapse of the printed word and the collapse of the codex version of this media, the book form version, um, where its advertising revenue came in and allowed um, journalists to make a living wage and to go out on the beat, so to speak, and report on things and uncover 
um, you know, deep scandals uh, and corruption in society have almost completely disappeared because it's all about a race for clicks because that is what drives engagement, drives um, the finances. And so therefore, as I've said many times before, moderate woman says reasonable thing gets no clicks. Um, but there seems like no balance. And then in the last couple of years, this balance was completely um, distorted by the pandemic. The pandemic changed the game. Now you, um, if you've been following the podcast uh, since the beginning, probably know what I'm going to say here. But the pandemic experience absolutely changed the game. It changed society. And I would say it's probably, it has changed things forever, I would argue. Well, you can't argue for forever, Karen, you? No, you can't. But I think in time, and this moment will be judged to be seen as one of the most important moments in modern human history uh, since the fall of communism, at least since the economic collapse of 2008, which I think helped shape the um, pandemic. Now, if you go back to the beginning of the podcast, my feelings about lockdown or how society lent into authoritarian measures at the time, suspending people's rights, etc., etc., um, this was where we learnt the phrase being gaslit, because we were gaslit because so much didn't make sense and every week the narrative changed three weeks to flatten the curve turned into two years and five or six months pangolins remember them pangolins pangolins to bats and if you'd mentioned the lab leak theory back then you would have lost your social media accounts now it's quietly been accepted as yeah probably most likely or yeah to 90 something percent or to whatever it is it's been accepted as quietly yeah and probably like you in your country, no one has really accounted for that. No one's been held accountable for these massive, um, I suppose once upon a time, they would have been called lies, but now they're just calling them gaslighting. Um, and it didn't stop there. Vaccination will stop transmission. It didn't. People not being able to bury their loved ones, pharma profit margins, celebrities screaming at you to stay inside, uh, which of course now could be handily deep faked. Um, digital platform censoring experts who disagreed with the main narrative. Were you a denier? Did you want everyone's grandmother to die? The media propped up the state narrative. The nudge, if you've ever heard of that book. That book. Propaganda. We were constantly being gaslit. And this is where we learnt the phrase gaslit. Now, you may argue, you may disagree with what I just said, um, and you will say, well, you know, um, I was being gaslit by people from the other side. That's possible also. That's why I'm discussing really the meaning of, um, and of our, um, the meaning of not just gaslit, but why things don't make sense. And if you were standing in a completely different place, looking at the same thing as me, um, perhaps you would say the same in your podcast about me, but coming from the other side, this is entirely possible. And once upon a time, as I read at the start of this, that used to be just called disagreeing, and you were able to reach consensus through discussion, but that's not really what's happening in this very tribal world we've entered into. Families fought and argued, mine certainly did. Uh, friendships ended. We were told um, X was Y and vice versa, and disagreeing could cost you almost everything. And as we move into a greater digital phase where um, analog forms of um, living, analog forms of making a living are going to slowly disappear, this becomes more and more precarious when you just have everything conglomerated into one digital space that somebody could unperson at any time. Um, hello, Canadian truckers. There was, then there was, um, we as a society, the world online, all day, all night, sitting online, isolated, taking on sometimes more and more extreme views. Um, and who could blame them? Because we're 
Um, you know, we're social animals. We're social monkeys. And here we were locked in our rooms with nothing but the internet for company. Um, you could only see it going one way. And the elites complain. We watch them on the World Economic Forum. They complain that the people, that's you, them, have lost their trust in them. They've lost their trust in the media. All of these things are at all-time lows. How is this surprising? Now, I studied journalism and media, and as for long as I remember, I've been skeptical of authority. Not everyone is. That's fair. Um, where it came from, I couldn't exactly tell you. But the principle of asking, um, and I seem to remember one particular uh, teacher in um, when I studied journalism, who, um, let's, and I will also say this, at the time, uh, I was um, uh, an elder um, student, not that much elder, but 10, 12, 14 years than the, than the kids in my class. And by and large, to a, sing, to a person, um, the lads wanted to write about sports, rugby and Gaelic football, that's uh, Irish football, um, and the girls wanted to write about fashion and celebrity. Um, I'm not being disingenuous or fatuous about that, but that's all, of the, that's all they wanted to write about. Nobody was political. Um, the, you know, the... The home and away society had more people than the political societies. Home and away is a, a, a soap opera that was popular in the 80s and the 90s. Who knew I would finally get round to mentioning home and away and stare out in, um, at the sunset in a wistful manner. Um, the point being that everything has changed. Now, I'm sure being in college right now and speaking to relatives of mine who are anecdotally will say um, everything is literally political. Even the soap operas you might watch are somehow political if you give one thing time over another. It's tiresome, isn't it? But um, one particular teacher when I went to college, he sort of imbued in me, and uh, I guess the students who were listening and learning, um, a what he would call a healthy scepticism of every narrative. Um, consider who owns which newspaper you read a story in. What's the angle? What's the agenda? Who wrote the story? Where did they come from? Um, if they quote a study, who paid for that study? I mean, look, for decades, the tobacco lobby paid for so-called experts to tell them smoking didn't cause cancer. And the idea that the same principles were not at work during the pandemic is naive and laughable, of course. Um, I would recommend The Century of the Self by Adam Curtis. And um, you can go and watch that four-part um, amazing documentary, The Century of the Self. And the first part is dedicated to the birth of marketing and advertising. And you realize those things are um, inextricably linked to power, to the birth of the multinational company who were then able to influence politics, um, whether it was to influence Roosevelt or whoever else. And they became very, very powerful and influential in society, the creation of this new medium. And they gave birth to experts. You know, you watched Fauci tell um, tell us, I am the science. I am the science. Um, which, when you think about it, uh, doesn't make any sense because science is the rigorous examination of ever-changing coefficients, I guess. At least I would have thought it is. However, um, of course, there will be people on the other side of this who will be shouting at me to put the opposite side of that. That's fine. Do that on your own podcast. But... If you are constantly considering the backstory, uh, considering the back narrative of everything, it gets really tiresome. It's tiresome, isn't it? Now, I may be in a, I'm in a position to have that space and time to be that tiresome. Well, obviously, I'm sitting here making almost 200 podcasts. But to always try and understand that 
um, and to come at, come at it from a place of distrust of the institutions of power and state and politicians um, and as it's transpired also the media to not have blind faith it's much easier to believe that these institutions uh, their backers and their leaders have your interest at heart and know what's best and can just be um, can just take the decision making process and absolve you of um, any part of that um, and some some I would say a small percentage do but Many don't. And that's the evidence. That evidence is clear throughout history. I mean, um, just before the pandemic started, friends of mine um, were, would, I'd play football with, would scream and shout about, ah, oh, the polit- politicians are this, the politicians are that, politicians are the other, um, the health service is this, the health service is that. Um, we, they would stay after the football match and they would shout and, you know, complain about all of the things that were wrong in the Irish system and then one week to the next they were shouting at me for upholding the same arguments going I don't think this is right I don't think this is correct I need to have some more information is this right is this does this have precedence I was the one whereas I was just applying the same logic from the week before to the same institutions of power and governance um, it probably maybe like yours broke my brain almost completely but this is what happens when people are afraid. This is what happens when um, the nudge, the propaganda starts to work. However, I'm aware that if everyone thought like me, then most likely society would collapse as one of the building blocks of society is shared belief. Shared belief in fantasy. In um, Well, that's what belief kind of is, really, isn't it? Why is money worth anything? Because we agree that it has worth. Who decided that minerals from the ground have meaning? Gold. What is that really? Gold. Why does that have such meaning? Silver. Um, we, you know, there was once a war over tulips. I think in the in the in the ancient world, um, turmeric or colors or azure or whatever, um, whatever the dye is that um, dyes things purple. God, I should have really done some little bit of research on this. Misinformation, malinformation. Point is, why do we agree as a society that gold is worth something when it's just a bit of rock that comes out of the ground? It's because we've agreed collectively over a shared narrative. And why do we want one brand over another? Why do you want Nike over the knockoff brand that looks exactly the same? Because you've bought into the meaning of that brand. Um, it takes a lot of guts to stand opposed to your tribe, to be in the out group. We want to be in the in group, to belong. Status. We don't want. Um, we don't want pariah status. And how quickly we fell into those tribes over COVID. Oh, get over it, Alan. Get over it, Alan. All right, all right. Ten years of social media. Um, we've, and this is something a bit more. Um, a bit more complex. And I've written about it in Primordial. Um, I've written about, I've written some lyrics about these kind of things, but it feels like the story of the West. If you're sitting here listening to me in a country that is in the West, take a little look inside your country, inside your system. It feels like the story of the West, the narrative of the West, whatever that means. And that's why this section is a little bit more vague, a bit more nebulous. Um, that it's run out of steam. Um, this is something that writers after the World War One thought, as they say, um, they saw it as the death of the morality of the ancient world. 
um, the principles of the Greco-Roman moral world, um, the the moral, ethical, philosophical principles that were buried until um, the Renaissance began and then the Enlightenment. But they felt we were heading into some other dark age where we were going to witness this thuggish century that the, that the First World War foisted upon us. A thuggish century of brutality and slaughter and murder. And on some level, maybe they weren't wrong, but they, the feeling was that the, roast, the process of the West had run out of steam. And a hundred years after, how do we feel about that? I would posit that it's sort of true. Our stories we've told ourselves have fallen into decay. We seem to loathe ourselves. We view our, our history only negatively for the most part. And if you do view it positively, you're seen as, um, as some kind of proto-fascist, I suppose. We have become our own enemies and, and thus much easier to divide and conquer. Uh, which is the process of the narcissistic decade of social media, um, allowing the most extreme voices to have the bullhorn all the time. But once upon a time, our, and I say this broadly, and um, whether you're sitting in America or you're sitting in Poland or wherever you're sitting, um, the threats and the enemies to the institutions of your state were external, for the most part. Um, I'm using the U.S., I suppose, more as my example. But patriotism meant something that could galvanize society. Now it's seen only as a poison. Um, let's look at 9-11 or something like that. Once upon a time, that attack um, clearly, and you look at the sort of remodeling, the remaking of the 21st century post 9-11, you know, the, the American century, whatever you want to call it, um, that sort of hegemonic view of the world um, has now decided that the the enemies of that hegemony are within America. They're Americans themselves, not Al Qaeda or uh, Bin Laden or whoever else. What's happened, I think, is that these external th threats that um, various Western countries um, identified or decided to use, maybe uh, um, as part of their, you know, as part of the media propaganda, whatever, to galvanize society, are now all pointed inwards. It's because of the birth of our surveillance society, a birth of our extreme surveillance society, that now the state views the people as the enemy. We are our own enemies. You can see that's reflected in the tribalism of modern societies. But like I said, once upon a time, our threats and enemies perhaps were external. We looked um, at the people across the road. Um, we looked at people... Um, maybe more about what we had in common than we didn't. Um, well, that's, let that, let's that sink in. Maybe that's not true. But now these things are seen as poison. We've embraced an almost suicidal desire to flagellate ourselves, uh, to end ourselves. It's like a society-wide malady. We lie on our sickbed, upon our spiritual deathbed, is a song I wrote for Primordial on Exile Amongst the Ruins. An underrated song, if you ask me. One of my favourite. Um, and that's exactly what this is about. It doesn't pick a side. Um, it's, you know, as I said before, I consider myself politically homeless. If you think I belong to you, I definitely don't. And that counts for either side. The idea that you aren't allowed to cherry-pick Belief systems from either side is just nonsense. Of course you are. Context, nuance, these things are the most important. But um, something has changed. There's like a society-wide malady. Tie this into an entirely individualistic 
and post-World War II society. Now you add in the turbocharged narcissism of social media as fuel to the fire and the birth of this individualistic um, mentality throughout the 1960s counterculture. You can clearly see that your average person, um, uh, maybe not your average person, but a lot of people have, they see no worth in a civic society anymore. What could the ancients teach us about living? What advice could they give us? None, of course. This is something I return to often. The globalist ideal that we are citizens of nowhere. They want us, in my opinion, to be citizens of nowhere. Easy, easily malleable into a, any society, like a blank slate. Um, personally, I think this is what they would prefer. Um, nationalism, patriotism, whatever you want to call it. Um, I kind of subscribe sometimes to the same viewpoint as... Yuval Noah Harari about this and that it doesn't have to be this negative thing. It can be a system of cooperation. And don't forget, the left traditionally was also nationalistic. Are you telling me that uh, Che Guevara wasn't a nationalist? Of course he was. Um, but the point being that these words now, Arimist, are so, so charged, so heavy. And how did it come like that? Um, I think because the last decade uh, has seen a great um, push by these huge multinational corporations that have essentially eaten out the power of the nation state. Um, do you think Ireland, as a country with vast, massive international um, infrastructure, financial infrastructure because of our lower tax rate, is willing to say no to some of these companies? I mean, we didn't even ask Apple to pay their massive, massive tax bill. We went, ah, look, it's grand. And then when, um, you know, Brussels changed the rules, we just altered our rules to try and keep that foreign investment. Um, so our financial, our financial power as observed by the rest of the world is something of a chimera, something of a white elephant. It doesn't really trickle down to your average person. And the cost of living and the cost of energy crisis goes up and up and up. But... And I think this is very important, is that the power of these huge multinational companies, whether they are the um, Teslas to the BlackRock to Vanguard to Chinese investment firms um, who clearly own lots of our city, um, hence why these investments in property, um, they would happily sit empty for years and years and years while Irish people uh, can't afford anywhere to live, etc. You know, the same thing is happening in your city. There once might have been a time where the power of the nation state could stand up to some of these companies. Maybe I'm being naive. I don't know. I wasn't old enough in 1983 to think indifferent, but maybe there was just no investment in Ireland in those times because nobody saw any point. But I do think there is something to this, and that is that the hollowing out of the nation state and its sovereignty and its power to confront some of these um, massive forces is um, almost rendered moot. So witness, again, we'll come back to the pandemic, witness the power of Big Pharma to shape the narrative and witness their profit margins. Show me the money. That is often the best metric by which to measure these things. But this vision is to create a citizen, to create a universal society, a global village where we are citizens of nowhere. Um, and we're, we're an easily malleable society, like a blank slate. Personally, I think this is what... Um, they, and I hate, I, I don't like using the they, but certainly let's call them the political elite or whatever you want to call it, that they would prefer. Um, nationalism or patriotism or whatever you want to call it is such an, uh, was such a traditional obstacle for this vision. But we are citizens of somewhere. We have a history that brought us to that point. Sure, we can argue why some of us lay claim to some piece of dirt more than 
um, another piece of dirt, um, another people's piece of dirt. And sure enough, people will fight about this to the end of time as they have since the start of time. Um, but these things can be used to identify why we have much more in common with, um, of course, each other than this uh, globalist vision, which is, uh, you know, painted by uh, this political elite. And all of this cultural baggage, of course, can create division. But the alternative, though, is some homogenous society with one viewpoint, one narrative, where every high street has the same shops, metaphorically and practically. As much as I have a love-hate relationship with my city and country, I am from here. A society without grounding is far as easy to not just divide and conquer, but literally just sweep up the pieces and mold it into whatever you see fit. And that part of that, part of that vision is the idea that um, we don't have shared narratives, that we um, nothing makes sense, nothing entirely makes sense to us anymore. Um, like I said, one week we're told one thing, the next week we're told the other. Very much like it's almost like our societies are becoming. Um, very digital variations of the old Soviet societies, um, where Pravda, you could pick it up that day and it would tell you all the statistics and numbers. That's one thing I noticed about Eastern European countries, the love of numbers. Um, when you look at some old um, old museum or something like this, it will tell you the, um, the height, width and length of guns and bridges and things, things that would never seem to matter so much to us. But the statistics of production are such um, uh, an important part of that old communist ideal. But if you look at, say, um, Soviet citizens, um, of which I know quite a few, or have known quite a few, um, and people behind the Eastern Bloc, they would pick up their paper and the state-controlled media, and it would tell them, uh, production is up, this is up, that is up. And then they would go to the butchers and there would be no meat in the shop. They would go to the, sh they would go to the bakery, there would be no bread. Um, they could see a very different reality. And that's what being gaslit is. You're being told by the media, by the papers, this and this and this and that and the other. And then you wake up and you look around and you go, this seems to be a very different reality. Um, and it almost feels like digitally we, we're, we're slipping into this ideal. And it's, it's, throughout, it's something that authoritarian regimes have practiced for um, decades. And if you're listening to me now in a country that doesn't have free press, uh, maybe you're listening to me in Iran or something. Um, I know that some of you do. Um, look how little coverage the media gave to the um, the uprising there when it should have been on the front of the papers. We should have been um, supporting that. Where if we send, um, you know, in the middle of the night, they pass a bill sending 65 billion uh, to Ukraine. Um, is this what most American citizens, um, taxpayers want. Um, surely we should have been sending something to support the uh, uprising of normal people in Iran. No. Why is this? Because you're being gaslit one narrative to the next. Um, and the ever-constricting elements of digital society mean that dissonant and dissident voices are going to be, um, I think, under threat in the future, especially with things like I've talked about before, the hate speech bill laws and all this kind of stuff, as they try and, you know, silence dissent when, um, you know, questioning this overall narrative structure. Just like Jon Stewart, uh, lately in The Daily Show, whatever, after he came back out of retirement, um, pointed out how old Biden is. And immediately the next day, everyone um, on one side of the media came out um, castigating him for even attempting to go there. And 
we can all see it you can all you've all seen the clips um they are incredible um and you feel it's almost like elder abuse um i didn't take me any pleasure to point that out and i mean also that comes back to what i said at the top of the podcast which is and uh, once upon a time um you know, you were in the 1980s, you sat down and you watched the news at night, and whether it was the Iran-Contra affair, or maybe uh, Reagan appeared on the television now and again, so did Thatcher, but Reagan wasn't in your bloody um, death-scrolling papyrus-like, um, you know, he wasn't there as part of your um, digital life. You weren't thinking about Reagan all day. Now, I'm sure some people were. You weren't thinking about him and what he was doing all day, but, obviously, but when Trump was um, in power... People were literally became completely deranged because every time they turned on the phone, he was there, he was there, he was there. Um, and it's no wonder it drove us all insane and that we couldn't agree on our shared narratives. My friends, that's part one of this random discussion about why I think nothing makes sense anymore. I have a whole other set of ideas and different points that I'm going to go through. Um, even Everything from neo-feudalism um, to John F. Kennedy. Um and then we're going to go back to his music. i got some interviews coming up and this and that and the other. But I just was thinking about this a lot the last few days. So indulge me. Indulge me. It's Agitators Anonymous. Um, I thank you and I will see you next week. <laughs>